Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Dave Gurney. I'm here with Joe Hilliard. And remotely, we have back a, a special returning guest. He's one of my favorites. I've got to be honest with you. <laughs> This is uh, Sean McClain. He is out of Houston, Texas, and he, I guess, claim to fame as far as the uh, Bam Bamaverse is. Uh, he's my best friend. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've seen a lot of movies together, and we've talked some movies on the podcast. We already. have. Welcome back, Sean. Okay, let's get down to it, boppers. <laughs> uh, well, <What>? let's <laughs> see what I did there. Yeah, I, Sorry. I do. Uh, <laughs> We're 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 going to be diving into a new release uh, in the first half of the episode, and then we're going to be doing that uh, fun walk through the sight and sound list, which we only have a few left. Yeah. So it has uh, been fun, though. It, it it definitely has been all along the way. I feel like we're building up to the uh, the one that might test us. Okay. The most. I haven't seen it yet. So. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Like, I'll be I'll be very curious to hear what your take is uh, when we get to Jean Dealman in a few weeks, but. Uh, but today we're not doing John. We are doing something else. Uh, we are doing John, though, in the first half. But before we get there, we need some beer in our glasses, guys. And because Sean is joining us from Houston, I thought, boy, wouldn't it be appropriate to have a Houston beer uh, on this episode? And so sure enough, I was able to grab a six-pack of Eighth Wonder Brewery, their Haterade, which is a Gosa that they make and i think it's been out for a while like a few years it's kind of one of their flagship beers i feel like it's one that i tend to see on the shelves when i'm up in houston and we finally see it down here um so i'm excited to to try this with sean and joe and our, our uh, second time to do an eighth wonder brewery beer of course with the rocket fuel that carlos was excited right, to have the back stout. when we had yeah. it very nice well i'm gonna get this open and into my glass mm -hmm. Joe, you've already poured yours. I have. Nice I and light. Clearly thirsty. It looks like it, it pours and looks, and the aroma is exactly like a gosa. Right, which a little salty, a little lime, right? Uh-huh. Mm, oh, I get, you know, it's been a while since I've had a gosa. You know, that that's uh, it, it typically a summer beer for me if I'm yeah. going to go for it. Um, but here, you know, but by this time, early spring, it's feeling like summer a lot of days, right? It's mid-80s. 90 outside. yesterday. 90 yesterday. Um, and also, yeah. uh, like a Gosa, a relatively low ABV, we're only looking at 3.3 for this guy. Wow. Yeah. That that yeah. is shockingly low for this podcast. You can crush these <laughs> all day long. Yeah. Well, we'll make up for that in the second half. We we have we have another uh, a beer on on deck that that might bring up the average ABV of this episode uh, pretty nicely. But before we get there, um, we'll be sipping on this while we talk about that film uh, with a John that I mentioned just a second ago. That, of course, being John Wick Chapter Four. It made all the money this weekend. It sure did. I mean, I, I guess I knew that this franchise was a pretty hot one. And, you know, we we reviewed John Wick Chapter 3 way back in Episode 40. 200 episodes ago, David. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because we're, we're, this episode, as it releases, will be Episode 240. Um, and this is a film that should have come along much earlier, right? I mean, it was originally slated to be released in 2021 after the success of Chapter 3. But obviously, uh, as with many productions, the 
pandemic kind of slowed things down. And I think also maybe not wanting to compete with other major movies being released at various times. It ended up uh, coming out only now in March of 2023. Um, but but nonetheless, what we have is the continuing saga yeah. of the Keanu Reeves character, John Wick. Uh, John Wick is a hitman who had in the first film gone into retirement, mm. but had sadly lost his wife, mm. who, who he had hoped to uh, have this wonderful post-hitman uh, life with. Uh, the only thing she left behind was this lovely dog that uh, you know he was attached to, obviously, emotionally were there, having just lost a spouse. And yet, uh, you know, gets mixed up in some nefarious business quite mistakenly and ends up having his dog killed and then goes on a path of revenge. And that yeah. first film is, you know, kind of uh, a wonder to behold in terms of, you know, simple kind of uh, basic revenge premise that kind of blossoms out into creating this whole world of this underground hitmen, hit person community that Society. exists globally. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as the films go on through chapter two, through chapter three, we see that world get expanded. We see that there are these hotels all across the globe, uh, presumably in the largest cities. You know, we, we the primary one that we see is the one in New York, right. uh, which is headed by Winston, played by Ian McShane. Uh, he, he becomes kind of a regular recurring presence in these films. Also, Lance Reddick, who... Uh, uh, had his last appearance in this one, sadly, uh, has left us. Um, but but anyhow, we see that whole world unfold. John, of course, trying to get out, but getting pulled back in yet again in the second film. And the, where the fourth film has us pick him up, if if those uh, listeners uh, who have watched the series are are forgetting, is that right at the end of chapter three, Parabellum, John Wick had been uh, Winston. Ian McShane had kind of turned against him because he was forced to by the high table yeah. um, to potentially kill John Wick. It's not a successful kill, but he made the attempt. And so John is on the run of of sorts. Or but that or, was the cliffhanger for part three. Yeah, yeah. Where is he? Where, you know, what, what what's going to go on here? Um, and Winston, as we find out at the beginning of chapter four, is now in terrible position with the high table. Um as as the film chapter four begins, we see uh, Wick, the the Keanu Reeves character, uh, traveling off to the desert to uh, kill the Elder, who's who's sort of this overseer of this whole underworld. Um, and even though he's told that this is by by the current Elder that this is something that's not actually going to gain him what he wants, he does it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, this causes the high table to essentially revoke Winston's uh, hold on the Continental. They they literally destroy, they they uh, demolish, right? Yeah. I mean, a, a, a controlled explosion to implode the Continental um, as he watches on from a skyscraper uh, away from there. And so where it starts is Winston has been stripped of that. Uh, he is, is sort of uh, looking for his way back in. John Wick of course, um, is looking for his way out that that he can get out from under the high table and and what they're trying to uh, to force him to do or or uh, you know having any obligation to them. And so much of the film is him trying to plot his way out with Winston kind of coming along in terms of maneuvering, helping him maneuver, uh, coming up with a plan to be able to sort of both restore Winston but pull John Wick out 
of the entire thing. And the new ingredient that gets brought in here is that there is the former partner of John Wick, yes. Kane, mm-hmm. uh, played by Donnie Yen. Uh, and he blind is blind, but an expert uh, hit person nonetheless, and is sent after John Wick. So, you know, this part, his former partner, a brother of his, right. um, sent after him as he tries to uh, make his way out of these obligations that he has. That's a longer plot than Apocalypse Now. It's it's a longer (laughs) film than Apocalypse Now. (laughs) So uh, if you go back to episode 40, you can hear David and I's history with John Wick. Mine briefly was that I skipped the first couple until it was time to do part three and went back. And it was like... Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I get it. This is a franchise I can really enjoy. Hi, Gun. But what about you, Sean? I, I guess uh, I'm not aware if you had, had, had traced John Wick from the very beginning. Uh, Not from the very beginning. Kind of similar to both of you. Um, I didn't pay attention to the first one. And it, it became sort of, I just would hear it references the, um, you know, the Keanu Reeves hitman movie where they kill his dog and he goes on revenge and i kind of lumped it together with there's a lot of uh uh i guess and i guess now he's fully an action hitman type star and he's been in action films before but i kind of lumped it together with uh like taken and some of these other movies where you take an actor that you don't have is this menacing presence and then you you give them this uh franchise where they are, uh, you know, these Bad aggressive, ass. you know, yeah, yeah, where they always, uh, nobody gets up or hand on them, that kind of thing. And also just sort of the ultra violent set. There's a lot of things like uh, like the Kingsman series and right, Deadpool and right. things like that. And so I wasn't really aware of it. I went back and watched it a few years ago and was surprisingly intrigued with it and then went ahead and watched the the two subsequent ones um i like i like aspects of the second one the third one i wasn't as really (laughs) uh the third one was kind of funny because i watched it what i thought was about halfway through and and it was on you know recorded on my dvr i didn't even finish it so that kind of says something but i was like (laughs) i gotta go back and finish it and I thought there was maybe an hour left of the movie just because of the situation. And it turned out there was only about five minutes left. And I was like, oh, well, that's I thought this was the third and final chapter of this. I'm like, well, clearly there's there's more to be because it's, it ends on uh, very much on a cliffhanger. Um, so I, I enjoy the movies. I wouldn't say um, I was a huge fan or really um you know, I, I know a lot of people were very excited about this movie uh, coming out. Um, I observed when Joe reached out to me and said, hey, are you free um, on whatever today's date is? Uh, first of all, I was like, is this about Scream 6? And he yeah. said, exactly, y'all aren't even covering that. So I said, and I looked up, he says, John Wick. And I said, I looked it up and I responded back and said, this movie's three hours long. Because I, I went and bought my ticket. <laughs> And I said, are all of them that long? And he said, have you not seen these before? I'm like, yeah, but I just, I don't remember how 
Well, I, I, you know, when you watch them at home, it just, you absorb it different, but I don't think they have nearly the lengthy run. No, I, I, th this is definitely the longest of the, yeah. the series. I think, and and yeah. frankly, I didn't remember a lot of the details of the first three. I can, I can point out specific fight sequences and weaponry. Right. And mm -hmm. that to me is the stars of these films. I, just, I was thinking to myself as you went into a, a longer kind of plot synopsis here, and this is a legitimate question for both of you. How important is any of that? I mean, I, I think... It, go ahead, Sean. Well, I think to some degree on this one, it is. And I went back and rewatched them all uh, over the last uh, You're week welcome. or two. To, uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, <laughs> to, uh, and they go by pretty, pretty briskly, uh, especially if you've seen them before. Um, eh, you know, the plot points were kind of important to me because so here's here's a little uh, backstory on me actually seeing the movie. I uh, I always go to the same theater and I kind of know what their patterns are for uh, previews. And usually I, I don't really care about seeing the previews because I've already seen them or I've seen them so many times. And I usually just go in, try to get in, just see a couple of previews and then watch the movie. Well, they started this one uh, way early, about 10 or 15 minutes after. And I walked in during the opening scene and I realized I have no idea what's going on because I hadn't finished the third one. And I didn't know if I missed something crucial at the beginning of the movie. So I, <laughs> I sat and watched 30 minutes of it and decided I'm just going to go to a later show and I'll and I actually bought a ticket and walked into another show. So I got to see the first 30 minutes twice of this. But what I intended to do was watch uh, or read on Wikipedia how the 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 third one ends. Because I really didn't remember uh -huh. that uh, uh, the Ian McShane's character, that Winston had shot John Wick. And so I didn't really know what they were talking about it, when they're meeting with the marquee. And so I do think... I mean, I think you can kind of look at it in two ways. If you just want to look at this as just uh, a visual action feast for the eyes, you could probably go in with no information. I think it enhances it to know what's going on and why some of the things are being done because there's a lot of references to the previous ones. And that was a really long answer to whether you need to see it or not, the previous ones or not. But I do think it... it, I, I well, do no, think my, it that wasn't my question. My question was, does oh, the wow. story matter in John Wick? I think you. Matter. I think you still answered it. Yeah, I think. I think he. Yeah, he I think did. it does. I mean, yeah. I think though. I mean, to a degree, uh, because it does seem with each movie, there's new layers of like, you know, capital R rules for what can you know. In this one, you get into the, you know, what becomes the final standoff uh, between him and the marquee. At the end that you know this is something you can invoke uh you know that we didn't previously previously know so i mean uh, and obviously there is some complete lack of realism in this i mean <laughs> yes no for sure yeah i mean just but there's I no way i think that's what i enjoy about the john yeah. wicks is that yes of course no one can survive that level of assault for as long as he does in these films but that gunplay, the knife play, the sword play, the archery is just so fucking cool and so well done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, when we talked about John Wick 3, I think we, we spent quite a bit of time talking about um, just 
you know, for one thing, like if I think as a baseline, if you're not a fan of martial arts films, these films aren't for you, right? I mean, these are an attempt, I think, on the part of Stileski and uh, um, or Stahelski and uh, and Reeves and and the people involved to really kind of pay tribute to what they love in martial arts films, which is really well done fight choreography, good cinematography, good editing in the fight scenes. I mean, I feel like they, um, all of these films, John Wick chapters one through four, have done a great job of um, really doing that high level fight choreography mm-hmm. and in a way that is very, um, accessible right i mean i and i say that because a lot of times i think and again i feel like if we if somebody listens to episode 40 and then listens to this i'm going to sound like i'm repeating myself i apologize but i feel like it's important to say that you know so many action films these days those big budget sort of um explosion city destruction spectacles that we see uh they sort of sacrifice uh, the, the clarity of the fight choreography and the clarity of what's going on for the sake of spectacle. It's all about like how many huge explosions can there be, how many, and this film, as much as there is tons of firepower, right? There's lots of gunplay here. There are a few, you know, explosions. It's generally much more about these people, you know, the Wick, obviously, but then the people coming at him, these mm-hmm. other assassins, these other hit people, um, coming at him and seeing them very clearly for what they were even in very chaotic situations where they're you know like one of the big set pieces here is set around the Arc de Triomphe and they're mm-hmm. going around in that circle around and you know as many times as he's taking on this seemingly unending stream of uh, potential yeah. killers who who are after him to get this bounty that keeps going up throughout the film. I was able to keep track of where he was, what what danger he was in, who was coming at him. And and I think that's a huge accomplishment. And I think that this is made by, you know, um, that Stahelski is uh, originally a stunt person, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, where this whole series comes out of is this relationship between Reeves and Stahelski as a, as a stunt person who had worked with him on The Matrix and, and other films and then you know, putting this together, I can see that this is really their attempt to see how far they can go with that kind of action filmmaking that's much more practical, even though there are a ton of special effects, but there's a lot of just practical fighting going on here. And I think if you're a fan of that, you're going to love this. But I've, I forced myself, not forced myself, but <laughs> this time I, I purposefully went in with the, the thinking, is this at all on any level a story that's worth being told like you know what your question was before is the story important here and i really was trying to think like is because going in knowing it was going to be three hours i'm just thinking is that appropriate that's how long long the godfather if, if, if this is a love letter to action films do we need a three hour version of it because the best action films in my mind are the ones that know how to get in get out like 90 minutes to maybe maybe an hour 45 it's just Bing, bang, I know who's got to be done with, and they see it, and and that's it, right? Um, but I, I actually came away feeling like there is some value here, and that the story, the world that they've kind of built around this character, and the conflict, the primary conflict he's experiencing, is actually a pretty, I think, interesting one. I think if you want to engage with this in that sort of more philosophical mindset, I think that's absolutely there, and it's not something that you're just imposing upon it. I think it's inviting you to, right? I mean, to me, 
this series at this point is very much about identity. It's very much about what, who a person is, who gets to dictate that. Does a person get to choose for oneself who that person is? And I think the answer that it keeps giving us is the right one, honestly, and that no, you are not in control of yourself. You are subject to the systems that are around you, right? This high table is as far-fetched and ridiculous as it seems. We all have the version of the high table that we bend to, right? Socially speaking, there are roles that we can fit into, we're expected to fit into, we adopt those roles, and there are certain expectations that are there of us, sometimes very much legally codified, Mm -hmm. other times more just expected, anticipated, and there are relationships that we form along the way that can sometimes come into conflict with that, right? I really like this person who's maybe even on the other side of the equation from where I am. How do I deal with that, right? The the rift that's there between him and his partner throughout this film, I think really kind of plays into that. And like these guys who clearly had a past together, respect for each other, and yet because of things that were sort of it seems out of their control largely. They get forced into a situation where now they're enemies and, and they have to kind of deal through that. I think there's a lot there. And, and, and under I, the control of yeah. the powers that be. Yeah. It's not a choice that they made. No one in that relationship, uh, you know, right. double-crossed someone well, or cheated on someone's wife or anything like no, that. No, it's, it's, it's just, just that both of them wanted to get they're, out. They're and in the this only game. Way, yeah, yeah, and the only way out is to then be indebted to this, you know, system. Yeah. Well, he says something to the elder where he said, and I, I forget what the exact dialogue is, but the elder says, you know, if you came here to kill me, you know, I think you'll find it's just a complete waste of time and it'll have no impact on anything right. in the bigger universe. And, he, and he's like, yeah, I kind of disagree with that and then shoots him. And it's something if you if you look at all of the movies, I mean, he is he is standing up against, I guess, the high table all the way through and he doesn't really relent or i mean even it's kind of one of those things where even when he loses he won a huge victory and we can talk about that more in the the ending of it and kind of the um you know how to interpret it but he he seems to have like this defiance against the rules that they've imposed on him all the way through it's kind of how i interpreted it and he's he's going to fight them if it ends in him dying or I, I kind of thought it was going to be a, the reason it was going to be so long was he was going to one by one kill whoever is on the high table, all right, of them, right. just so it ceases to exist. Um, I, I don't even know. Do we even see, I mean, that's the other thing about the lore of this. I don't know exactly. There seems to be a pecking order. There seems to be whatever John wick is sort of the assassin. And basically in this universe, you're either an assassin or you go dancing at high-end uh, EDM uh, music clubs <laughs> all the time, and you're oblivious to um, to any gunplay or anything. Uh, there's no other jobs in this in this universe. But the um, you can work the switchboard for the high table. Oh yeah, the switchboard. Oh, I love, I love, that's always or, a or DJ for the high table. <laughs> DJ, yes. But they, you know, there there seems to be the um, you know the the i guess the street level assassin and there's whatever uh winston you know the the hotel um the managers uh, yeah. i believe is their title yeah. um uh and we meet the one for from uh uh is it osaka here uh yeah for osaka it's hiroyuki uh, sonata who yeah um uh we saw recently in he was in bullet train and uh, um which was a movie 
kind of similar to this that uh, I was kind of left cold with. I mean, it was fun, but not as impactful as this. And but I really enjoyed his performance in that. He has a, a real way of just as a side note, just kind of there's something in his eyes or he has this wry smile where it's like he's basically saying to everybody in the room, I know a lot more than you do or you're you're not you're not as clever you don't have things as figured out as you yeah. think you are um but uh where was i going with this so above the managers then there's the high table and that's who they answer to i i was reading somewhere that kill uh the uh is it scott adams who's the the german uh boss the the uh the guy with the gold teeth at the club uh, good question yeah i'm not i'm not familiar with that actor dr Uh, no yeah (laughs) (laughs) um is he german yeah uh they were in berlin right so they they were in berlin um it's the one that they played cards at the i mean there's so much to this movie i mean um you, you mentioned you mentioned bullet train and tell me if i'm interrupting you uh, go ahead a point that that requires completion i didn't see it in the distant the future uh you mentioned bullet train mm-hmm. i believe that bullet train a movie that we all uh david i enjoyed you know it was fun it's fine yeah uh, had Bullet Train made more of a box office impact, I think we could have seen Bullet Train too. I'm. I know that Marvel gets a lot of beef on this podcast, and I think that it is um, representative of kind of this other brand of franchise that, like John Wick, like a Bullet Train franchise that probably won't exist is based upon if enough people go see the first one, we'll make a second one. And that's when we have to probably deepen the lore of what we had created. I'm thinking Fast and the Furious. Mm -hmm. They they knew that was going to make a lot of money, but did they know that nine films later they'd be going to space? You know what I'm saying? We've got to... No, and it to- and, and that is an example of a franchise that actually changed quite a bit. As much as it, I think, has settled into a certain kind of routine. I mean, the first... It was a street racing film. Right. Initially, right? I mean, right. It, was, it was very much about... And that is such a vestige of the past at this point in this film yeah. that, you know, like they're doing everything but street racing at this point. It's, but I hear what you're saying. Uh, yeah. uh, the Jurassic World series. Right, the first right. one was a fantastic movie. Still holds up, in my yeah. opinion. But did they know that they were going to take it to the point where they would be doing the, what's the term from Scream 5? Uh, requel? Requel. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Legacy. And now we've got kind of the game, the game together. Jumanji. Yeah. Transformers. Right, right. If we can get them there, then we'll create a property that they like just enough to come back again, especially if they can bring kids to it. That's the, I think, the twist. Because aren't all the, there's no rated R Fast and Furious, correct? That's the twist of John Wick is that, you know, in theory, this is just for adults. And again, the violence in it, scratches an itch that i enjoy i i enjoyed this movie a lot i think that like you're saying the story is just elegantly presented enough for you to think that it matters yeah but again it's really just pretext to get john wick into all the situations that we want to see him in yeah i enjoyed it as well and i i I would say i this is one of the few movies that i want to go back and see in the theater again um because i I really 
really enjoyed it and I'm interested to see how it holds up. Um, and it could be the difference of, of the four. This is the only one I've actually seen in the theater and it looks great. Um, and it's obviously the theater is a much more immersive experience, but, um, this one, I guess, resonated with me more. And I do think when you talk about the story, it is, is it one long four part story or does each one have a distinct story? Because they do kind of have distinct stories. I think what set this one apart is I felt like he was always headed in a certain direction. So the fights felt as if uh, I'm trying to think how to explain it. I mean, well, literally the last one where he's going up the stairs, he's literally has to ascend the, these uh, with 220 stairs, but there's enemies coming at him, and he has to get to a certain destination by a certain amount of time. And I felt like you felt that through the whole uh, movie, each fight sequence, and I felt that more because I guess because there was a time sense to it or a, a, a deadline. But it also, and it's directly, you know, invokes. Um, the uh, uh, the 1979 uh, uh, the Warriors where they are yes. trying to get across yes. uh, New York City and encounter one bizarre set of violent circumstances after another and have to go through and it's you know it's reminds me a lot of a video game but in a good way where you have to go to different levels to get to the next step um, and some I mean I, I have to say too I feel like I saw things in this. That I've I've never seen before, um, in, oh, yeah. in, in movies. Um, the I'm trying to think of a good reference for it, but the or, or a good uh, instance of having seen this before. But the um, the fight in the abandoned house. So it you know and he has that awesome uh, explosion gun. I don't know what you would call it, but he shoots people and they burst into flames. Um, but it's from a uh, – the vantage point that you see it is from the top looking down on him and see him moving through it. Right, And right, I just right. don't feel like I've seen that in a movie. I mean, and I'm not as well-versed in all action films. Maybe there's something similar out that uh, out there like that. But that, w that really stood out as something unique. The um, – uh, David already mentioned the, the extended fight sequence – um, in the middle of the road with cars going by. I, it's one of these movies where you look at it, and I know um, that they have a high attention to safety. I've read some interviews about Keanu Reeves, and um, the director escapes my name, uh, but he, he's a former stuntman. But you watch this movie, and you go, how did people not just get hurt right and left making this? It looks so real and so dangerous uh, so much of the time. And it just – I was just really impressed. And usually – I mean I'll be honest with the previous ones. Having seen them before, I kind of tuned out during some of the fight sequences and was trying just to reconnect with the story just so I'd know what the story points were you know, for you're this podcast. You were reconnecting with your Twizzlers. In the theater, you're reconnecting. Oh, <laughs> right. Move on. <laughs> if you have to explain the jokes, David, they don't work. Well, and I was going to say, way to derail a man's point, Joe. <laughs> um, yeah. for, for a lame-ass joke. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, he's talking and talking. Um, well, I, I, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Sean. I think that, for me, 
I've only ever seen these films in the theaters. I mean, I, I was mm. I, I mentioned this on episode 40. I had not seen any of the John Wick films, much like Joe. He was just describing earlier. Um, I, I went actually when the third one came out and we decided to do it for the podcast. I bought a ticket to a back-to-back-to-back screening of one, two, and three that was uh, at our local Alamo Draft House here. They were doing that. I think it was probably something that was done throughout the chain. And so I went there for, it was about, you know, like six plus hours. Now, luckily, there wasn't a three-hour installment already, Mm. or it would have been seven, eight, nine hours. But um, spent six hours in the theater watching these on the big screen, and I was wowed by them. And in part, I think it was seeing them on the big, this is good, like, Again, I I use that kind of distinction between this kind of spectacle and the spectacle that we tend to get with the Marvel films these days. I prefer this to the Marvel thing. It looks more practical. Yeah, and and I definitely enjoy seeing that in a theater with a big screen, a good sound system. Um, I've not tried watching these at home. I don't know that I would be as excited about the series or as into the series as I am if it was something that I was trying to watch on a small screen at home and uh, with the distractions of home uh, surrounding me. So, I, you know, that, that, that's a tough question for me to answer personally, but I know I prefer seeing them on the big screen. And so I think, you know, that'll probably be um, yeah, my, what I continue to do. My favorite time of our year is that, like, Bammy's catch-up time, watching what critics call the best films of the year. Mm-hmm. And I know that throughout the year we're going to – be involved in some of these series and of of the series that i listed a little while ago this is my favorite one and i'm always happy to return to it and this one did not disappoint yeah i guess the question is is it over well that's what and sean kind of made mention of you know talking about the ending of this one because it it does seem to be giving this character an end and they have announced at least two spin-off universe films right and it a lot of the movie felt there, it, so I like I love the movie. It's shaggy, and sometimes longer movies are. There's plot lines where I felt that maybe they were teeing up even other um, spinoffs that they haven't announced yet. There's the ballerina, and I'm not sure is the ballerina a spinoff film, the one with uh, Anadarmus that's coming out, um, and then there's the con- uh, the um, uh, what's the hotel? Uh, Continental. The Continental is the is going to be a series, but it did feel like there was characters that were presented at some times where uh, I felt like okay, this is this is uh, laying the foundation for spinoffs or um, you know sequels or or different different things. But I mean, we don't see him dead. You know, we just see we cut to him falling over. That's uh, true. Uh, and then we see his yeah. headstone being visited. So yeah. that, I hear what you're saying. We don't we don't see the cold dead body being put into the ground. We just get the right. he slumps over and then cut to graveyard. Yeah, ballerina mm-hmm. is a film. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, Sean. I think that um, to me, like the, the um, Rina Sa- Sawayama character, Akira. That's uh, Koji, right. the manager in Osaka. His daughter who survives. And then wants John Wick to avenge her father's death, but of course mm-hmm. that would be mean killing his former partner Kane, which doesn't happen, right? And in fact, like right. their their relationship is strong enough that it seems like he actually sort of plays into a scenario that allows Kane 
to live and maybe has the hope of reconnecting with his daughter and being out from under the high table. Um, seems like it's going to be a happy ending. But you, did you guys stick around for the post credit scene? Yeah. Okay. I didn't, which yeah. is... Um... He had two chances. <laughs> no, just one. He left the well, other one. Right. The... <laughs> well, it was about midnight by the time I was getting out. <laughs> so I just, I didn't think there would be for, for some reason. Right. I, I'm usually pretty good. I always check before I leave. Yeah. Um, You're not cool but... unless you have one. Right. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, it does. That does kind of tee it up. The um, the character. How did y'all feel about the character of the the? He's called the Tracker. Uh, oh, he introduces himself yeah. as Mister Nobody. Um, I really enjoyed his character, but it took me a while to figure out what his motivations are, and I'm not sure if I I really came away understanding. It seemed he didn't want to engage in the bounty for john wick unless it got to a certain amount right and there was a notebook where it had different amounts crossed out so it seems like he was it seems like there's some story there that i don't know if they they had to excise it for for running length or if it's setting up um uh something something else uh but he seemed that he seemed to be it was interesting because he seemed to be so outside of this world he knew how to operate in it but he didn't seem to know necessarily what the rules were. Um, he seemed genuinely shocked when um, the Marquis stabs him in the hand. And it's like, dude, you got to know by now, and this, you know, <laughs> you, you can't just make, walk in and make a deal or anything. I mean, somebody's going to, you know, cut something off, but yeah. um, it, what, what was, what were your impressions of the, the tracker character? We never get a name for him. I don't think. No, I think that that's that's how he's identified as a hunter or t tracker. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. That was probably in this film. I didn't not that I felt like it was a a bad or mishandled element so much as it was the one that left me feeling like, oh, I wonder if there is a bigger plan for this character. That's how I felt because mm -hmm. I agree. It never really comes into focus exactly what I mean. It's clear he has some goal to have, and we see that figure in his book of like forty three point eight million or so. Like this, there's some goal that he has to buy, but that never gets fully defined. He does kind of back off by the end of it and just sort of sits there to watch the duel and kind of, you know, drinking a beer on the sidelines, it, which at that point it almost, it did, it became funny. And, you know, I mean, he, yeah. and then he even like, what is it after, uh, um, you know, Wicks, jeez, oh, after the little one-liner there, the quip that he makes at the duel, he kind of, like, oh, good one. You know, he kind of laughs and, like, you know, hoists his beard. It's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, there's something kind of silly. But then that just kind of drops after it that. It feels like universe building, yeah. And and so, yeah, I, I could definitely see maybe that was, like, a little test balloon to see, like, oh, well, let's see how this character tests with audiences. And maybe we could build an entire film that would either be his backstory or maybe some kind of version of him you know, tracking somebody else. And then we learn more about him through flashbacks. I don't know. So I would not be at all surprised if we saw something uh, come out of that, that, you know, and I found it to be a likable character, obviously his relationship yeah. with his dog. I think that echoes and parallels the, um, the relationship that Wick has had with dogs, you know, primary, the, the first dog, but even later dogs throughout the series. So I think it's kind of nice to keep that in there. It's like a recurring element that like th this fondness for animals and, and wanting to protect them, even when, you know, his is like a killing attack dog who lo lots of uh, genital torture yeah. humor in this film. Yeah. I'll say, yeah. 
Yeah, well, and speaking of, what do you think about this hater right now? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that meant. Um, no, I think that Sean liked it the most of us. I'm going to say that I liked it next, and I think that you liked it the least of us, but I think that you liked it very much. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I... I think, uh, yeah. Well, however you want to rank it, I think we all liked it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to uh, try to get too much into... Uh, I'll see the next one. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I'm kind of... I like that they... I'd like to think there won't be another John Wick titled movie. Um, and that if they expand this universe, it's going to be to follow other characters and, and, and kind of imagine them and maybe build out this world. And I'll be willing to see the ballerina, let's say, when that, when that drops. Yeah, for sure. I was kidding about the hater raid, but I loved it. I, I, I thought this beer was so refreshing and cool. And for a Gosa, which is not my go-to at all, and a 3.3, certainly I would like literally, literally turn my nose up at that at any other time. This had a lot of flavor. I mean, remarkably so. It does. It's, yeah. It, first time for both of you to have this? My first time. I, I can't say. I, I'm pretty sure. Definitely my first time out of the can buying it on the shelf here in Corpus. Okay. I've had it a few times. I I actually like the style uh, quite a bit as a— and David, you're a fan too. Especially in those hotter times. Yeah, for sure. It's a good— uh, Beach, lake, river, beer, you know, if you want something that's not too heavy, uh, it's right. refreshing. And, um, you know, if you want something different than, a, you know, a light beer or something like that for floating down the river, it's uh, really works well for that, too. So uh, I've had it a few times. I definitely like the style. Yeah. I, I think that uh, Gosses and Berliner Weisses are the two sort of uh, sour beers that can be regular things in my rotation in the summer months because they are, just as you described, Sean, kind of lighter, easier to kind of do a session with where I'm going to have maybe a six-pack if I'm sitting out at the beach or at the pool or whatever. And, you know, at 3.3%, that's you're not really committing too much of a sin at that point. You know, you're, uh, you're kind of still in a, in a good territory. And also the sourness doesn't get like to that mouth puckering level. It's a very mild right. kind of, you know, it's more like drinking a limeade or a lemonade or something. Right. It's kind of not that it's got the sweetness, but it's balanced enough that it doesn't, you know, because believe me, I like some of the, the heftier sours um, or, or those kind of farmhouse sours that get real funky and, and whatnot. But with those, I tend to only want to have a few ounces at a time. You know, like give me a right. little four ounce pour. I'll taste it. Great. Oh, wonderful flavor. Now on to the next thing or, or something a little more uh, straight ahead. And that's not going to give me heartburn. Um, but, th but these ones I, I find I can actually enjoy, you know, a couple in a row, a few in a row and not not be too taxed by it. Well, um, so we, we've enjoyed four John Wick films <laughs> in, in a row, so to speak, um, and, and not been too taxed by that experience either. Um, we're going to switch gears a bit, though I do think there's a connection to be made between the film that we just talked about in the first half and the film that we'll be talking about when we get back. The 10th best film of all time, David. From the break. We are uh, back, ready to go. We're going to get some beer in our glasses before we start talking about the 10th 
best film of all time as, as uh, found through that uh, Sight and Sound Critics poll. Uh, but the beer that we're going to start with, we're, we're kind of doing two different versions of a similar beer here um, because uh, Sean up in Houston was able to get his hands on one. We were able to get our hands on another down here. Um, and what it is is we're going back to a brewery that's a regular favorite of the podcast. That be, yeah. That is Martin House Brewing Company out of Fort Worth. Mm. And actually, and, I, and I'll let Sean talk about it, we, we've even had it with Sean before in a sense. But uh, this time we're both going to be drinking versions of their Salty Lady, which is their Gosa that they um, that they do in uh, you know various forms. They they tend to have different kinds of fruits added um, depending on what it is that uh, is in season, or I you know I don't know how they decide. But what I got for us, Joe, is the strawberry imperial. Salty lady. I cracked it in the room filled with strawberry shortcake flavor. So I definitely, aromas. I definitely smell it as soon as you crack the can. Um, it's described as a fruited imperial gosa, and this one, as opposed to that one that we had before. Remember, folks, the Haterade was a gosa, um, no fruit additions, um, but you know, just the sea salt and uh, coriander that we would normally have with that. Um, and it was three point three percent. This one that we're having, this imperial from Martin House, nine point two, so almost triple the alcohol mm -hmm. of that first beer that we had. Now, Sean, you don't have the imperial version. You have uh, the standard Salty Lady, but with a different fruit. Right. It's uh, the Mango Salty Lady. Uh, on a previous podcast, I had the Green Apple Salty Lady, which I would say is fine. Uh, it tasted – it kind of had a, a, a Jolly Rancher – candy aftertaste to it i remember and, you saying that yeah yeah and it's and i'm a big fan of the salty lady in general and it, it seemed uh kind of an unnecessary uh you know kind of gilding the lily it was you know it's, it's good <laughs> enough the way it is so yeah. i didn't really see it being a uh a huge uh improvement <laughs> but it, i mean it was it was definitely drinkable from what i remember but i wouldn't select it again yeah. So, but this time I uh, the only I was able to find a a tall boy of the mango salty lady, which is five point two uh, ABV, which I think is uh, what they what they generally run. Very nice. And mango is your favorite. <laughs> mango is my least favorite flavor of anything. I, I don't know what it is, but I, I have an, an aversion to. Well, we appreciate, well, your, we appreciate I, your dedication. I don't want to spoil how he feels about the flavor, but I have seen him take a sip and he didn't do a spit take, which he was warning us might happen. Right. So I wanted it to drip down. Like, you know, I, right, right, yeah. I mean, the, the, even if the listeners at home wouldn't get that experience, we could have. Well, if you, <laughs> I'm a total pro. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> well, the, those of you that listen week to week know that we have got two films left after today in a series that we put together where we were going to round out the seven of ten films from the top ten list of Sight and Sound's most recent best films of all time list. We had done 2001 A Space Odyssey and a couple of others, Vertigo. Vertigo, Citizen, uh, Citizen Kane. Kane. But we hadn't done some of these others. And over the last four or five weeks, I have really been enjoying myself catching up with most of the time films I haven't seen before. Well, it's and it's it's just reinforced that, you know, as, as much as there is no 
perfect poll out there. There is no perfect list for for anything. Well, just mine, just my list. Your own personal list, Joe, absolutely, is is, uh, impeccable, and there is nothing we could do to to take it off its pedestal. But but most, there's going to be flaws with. But it reminds me that the value that's there is it, it at least points you to some really quality films and that because that's been the case so far is we've really enjoyed all of the films that we've uh visited or yeah. revisited over the past few weeks though as i said at the beginning i am curious to see what happens when when we get to that uh final film um well let's see what happens tonight we're doing well yeah we're doing singing in the rain 1952 com- com- considered by a lot of pointy-headed academics in the film world the best musical movie musical of all time a lot of people say that. The only one to make the top 10 on the sight and sound poll. Certainly at the top, uh, the highest up in the list uh, for that genre. You're absolutely right. Now, this is um, Stanley Donan and Gene Kelly, who were co- uh, frequent collaborators in creating musical film. They were co-directed this movie off of the success of their movie American in Paris, which I have not seen. Uh, this is the follow-up to that. This is produced by Arthur Freed for... Um, oh, God. MGM. Yeah, thank you. And... Within MGM, Arthur Freed uh, had his fingerprints as the producer over a lot of the musicals whose names we all know, um, including Singing in the Rain. Everyone's heard of Singing in the Rain. Everyone can probably hum the tune, at least Singing in the Rain. But this stars Gene Kelly, the, the co-director, Donald O'Connor, and Debbie Reynolds, and several others. But those are the three principals. And the story is very, very, I would say basic. The um, it is uh, the time in Hollywood history where the jazz singer comes out. This is when films move from silent films to talking films. And Gene Kelly is one of the biggest stars in Hollywood alongside his, um, his, his co-lead, Lena Lamont. Right. Uh, I don't know the actress's name off the top of my head. Gene Hagen. Thank you very much. Uh, they are a, a team, uh, like you, you you would have seen back then. They appear again and again and again uh, in films, and the they with get, lots of speculation about their off camera romance. Well, sure, and, yeah. the, the 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 studio that they're making these films for even puts like drops hints in all of the local trades, Hollywood trades, and magazines that go out at the supermarket at the time uh, that they are linked romantically, right. and they're putting on like a per, like like a. Uh, public face that this could be true. They but show up to premieres together. Privately, they really uh, he does not like her, and she thinks they may, actually may be in a relationship. Uh, through a very great meet cute, he meets the Debbie Reynolds character, uh, and they, you know, movie wise, instantly fall in love. Uh, their new film uh, that is under that is being produced uh, is right after the jazz singer. The studio head talks about this new thing called the talking movies with the jazz singer. Everybody blows it off, but oh my god, it's a huge hit. We're going to have to shut down production and make this into a talkie. Well, that's when we all learn that Don Gene Kelly's co-star can't speak great English <laughs> and has a real nasally she don't speak good. <laughs> yeah, has a really nasally uh, voice that uh, the public, as they're going to talking movies, may not connect with. So they they get the bright idea of using Debbie Reynolds' voice to overdub 
And then when Lena finds out, that salty lady finds out. Ooh, there we go. That's the connection. The shit hits the fan. It is a movie that's got, it's filled with uh, songs that you may know besides singing in the rain. Make them laugh, make them laugh. Yeah, uh, help yeah. me. So give me another one. Come on. Good morning. Good morning. Sean, you want to sing one for us? <laughs> Do you remember any of those? Uh, a, 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 a mouse, a house, a t- what was that one? Um, a Moses? Supposes. <laughs> yeah, that one, that one was the one that you yeah. might Gotta have. dance. There you Gotta go. Gotta dance. <laughs> um, and as a musical, as most of those movie musicals did, it was a lot of speaking, non-musical uh, dialogue that kind of propelled the plot. But when it was time, it was time, and we all sung and danced. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this is definitely, um, I, I feel like the film musical that it it tends to be the one that everybody knows, you know, like if, if, if you just say singing in the rain, people know exactly what you're talking about. You don't have, Oh, well it was the 1950s, you know, like, no, they know Gene Kelly, they know, um, you know, big technicolor spectacles, you know, like vivid colors, the, the sort of very, um, they may not necessarily remember that it is this also interesting kind of, you know, it it finds, it seems funny to use the term dramatization, but it is of this period in film history when the industry made this huge technological shift going from where films were silent or, you know, at least recorded without synchronous dialogue and music and they were able to sort of start bringing those things in, um, which, you know, the, the the film that we could have paired this with recently, I think, and that, and that was, yeah. you know, definitely very nakedly paying homage yep. to this, um, especially with a few of the scenes in it, was Babylon. No doubt. Um, w- which was depicting very much the same period and the same kind of impacts that it was having on similar kinds of performers, the Margot Robbie character uh, the, in, in I, Babylon. Yeah, the scenes of multiple films being shot on the same set. Right, that, right. It was outdoors in Babylon, indoors in Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah, you're right. Babylon uh, has a, Singing in the Rain has its fingerprints all over Babylon. Yeah. So, I mean, Sean, was this one that you have known for years, grew up with, or, or was this a, a film that uh, and is watching you came a, to later? watching a 50s musical totally twisting your arm, or do you kind of go, okay, whatever? I first saw it in, I believe it was eighth grade, um, in a, I, I, I'm assuming it was a theater class or uh, a English lit class. I remember they showed it to us. And it was one of those movies where, you know, I'm sure as a whatever, you know, 14, 13 year old, whatever, rolled my eyes, but then found it very entertaining and funny. You you rolled your eyes after you rolled up your pinched rolled jeans. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so I knew it from then. I've seen it a few times since then. Um, I don't know. I don't know what my favorite musical is. I don't know that it's my favorite one but i I find it a very enjoyable movie um i probably wouldn't have had it come into my own rotation had this not come up anytime soon but i was glad to have watched it again i it's one of those movies where i feel like i i haven't seen it in more than a decade where i feel like i can't really remember 
what was going on in it. And then as, as soon as I start watching, I'm like, okay, I remember everything about this. And I remember all the songs and, you know, uh, it's, it's also one of those movies. I feel like it's so ubiquitous kind of, um, the, where the references go on be well beyond the movie, where even if you don't, even if you haven't seen this movie, a lot of it would be very familiar between the songs, some of the jokes, some of the uh, some of the visuals. I feel like um, I, I think of in terms of I think they said at one point that all of Citizen Kane has been documented in clips from The Simpsons. And I feel <laughs> that it's a, a very similar kind of thing where a lot of this has been um, referenced in other areas of pop culture because just, you know, it's so uh so ubiquitous so i i enjoy it um i i enjoy musicals in general i don't uh i don't necessarily seek them out but um it's also the style of musical i like where and i forget the word for it where there is dialogue in between songs where it's not 100 percent. do either of y'all know what i'm talking about the um term yeah, for that and, and I'll, I'll try to find it while we continue yeah the, i i hear where you're coming from i mean for me Musicals are certainly not my favorite genre, and in fact, I believe when we did In the Heights, I even claimed that I struggle with musicals at times. I mean, and, and in part because I think, you know, if too much of the plot development gets couched in the music, I I kind of I, I, – it, it loses something for me. Like, I need right. there to be – those moments like you're talking about, those kind of like connective tissue moments where mm -hmm. the characters actually interact on a more, you know, sort of conversational level. Um, I find, well, and I don't want to get y'all hate mail because I know Les Mis is very popular, but I struggle with that one in that there is a lot of dialogue that happens that connects big scenes. And I, I love the, the songs, but there's almost this sort of we have to kind of get this information across and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of frustrates me uh, where it either should just stand alone with one big song after another right? or just have dialogue as connective yeah. tissue. Yeah. Uh, I think when the songs it, so. are there to kind of just expand a point that's being made, you know, like a character has arrived at a certain, but like the make them laugh, like, you know, Hey, it's good right. to have comedy and that like, okay, so let's do a song about how great comedy is and how, and how much we could, you know, and that that's lovely. And then, you know, but, it, but if it is there is like, Oh, I need to pay attention to every line that's being sung because this is me hearing what this character's internal thoughts are right now and how they're going to do this thing, you know, that, that gets a little bit laborious. And also I think it lends itself to less, interesting songs i mean i think songs are, are are generally something that's a little more impressionistic rather than kind of uh you know being sort of deep and uh in terms of plot plot driving uh in that way um uh, but but yeah i think you know what you said sean about how this film even if you haven't actually sat down and watched it front to back the likelihood of you having great familiarity with almost all of it is strong. I mean, like the, the the singing in the rain scene, for instance. You know, yeah. like Gene Kelly dancing in the rain on that sort of street. You know, this a, a when he had a hundred three degree fever, from what I read. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, you know, swinging around the light poles. Uh, you know, using the umbrella as a prop that he's kind of you know like using as a cane and put opening, closing, whatever. Like, it's just so iconic. I mean, if you you may never have seen this film in its totality, but 
I don't know how you could have possibly escaped seeing at least some fragments of that and and in various homages to it over the years. Yeah. So, you know, this is the kind of film, uh, like you, it had been probably, for me, oh, at least like seven or eight years since I had sat down and watched this. And it's one of those things where, yeah, if there was any question in my mind, do I remember? I I don't quite remember. As soon as it comes on, Mm -hmm. it all comes rushing back. I've never seen Oklahoma. I've never seen, you know, I mean, so I, these 40s to 50s classics, I think I've seen King of I, The King and I with Yul Brynner. I think I did see that. But I, I'm not caught up on musicals because, again, I, like you guys, I don't seek them out. I'm not going to poo-poo one just, you know, uh-huh. if it comes across the thing. Because to me, it's a very important, and I think that what makes this movie elevated to where I put it. Is it the 10th best film of all time? I don't know. This is the first time I'm really saying, hmm, maybe it doesn't belong on this list. But if you want to be inclusive of a very important time in Hollywood and what was being presented to the film goer that was loving it, and you want to put a musical on there, this one does, is the one I would choose. It's got a story that I love. The transition from the silent films to the talking films. And the com- the comedic way that they that they have a dilemma about that thing, the their leading <clears throat> lady that he is tied to for the films contractually probably can't speak, and so you're getting the impression that you're you're watching them learn how to put microphones yeah. on, on people and in a bush and on the fly, and th- there's great comedic. Um, uh, what do you call it when when the guy pulls his hat down over his head because he's so frustrated? It's oh, just yeah. right. so well delivered. Then you've got um, Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly, who as a team, because this tells so much story, not just the, the central story that I just said, but also where Gene Kelly came, Gene Kelly and, and O'Connor as buddies came from, from vaudeville to Broadway right. to Hollywood. And it's done in this like collapsed three, four, six minute a musical thing where the dancing and the gags and the fact that it seems like one take seems like extraterrestrial. Yeah. That they were able to do all, all that they do in that. Yeah. I think, I think it's important to, you know, for me, every time I see this one, I, Gene Kelly obviously is is wonderful. He's he's great, and he deserves all the accolades. And he was and he was co-director on this. I mean, it's definitely his project in a lot of ways. But to he, me, he dances in a way where I, as a non like dance fan, go to the ballet if you invite me. It's not my favorite thing to do. But he's presenting the human form, the male human form of which I am that, and doing supernatural things with his body and movement that yeah. is. Awe-inspiring to see. Yeah, though I, you know, where where I was going was uh, no, that's okay. Where I was going was that Donald O'Connor to me actually even outdoes him a little bit here mm-hmm. in the sense I that agree. I think that make him laugh uh, sequence is probably my favorite dance sequence. And and having seen this so close to seeing Beau Travai and and Denis Levant's dance at the end of that film, which I kind of yeah. marveled at. Like, there's definitely some overlap there that like falling on the floor and rolling around. And, the, and but but again, O'Connor doing it in this very um, just sort of you know pitch perfect, totally accurate. Like you you know he's nailing every single movement. They're bouncing, cli- you know, running up the walls, flipping off of them. 
crashing through the drywall at the end. It's just, right. it is so much like my favorite little gem from this film every time yeah. I see it where like I just he, he would have been the Jim Carrey figure at that time yeah oh the mugging the the, the, the way he's able to kind of like you know contort his face exactly right and like kind of move his lips back and forth and his eyes yeah. it's it's just a marvel to behold and it's and it's sad that I, I feel like uh you know uh, Kelly obviously I think is is a very um you know, celebrated and well-remembered figure. O'Connor, I feel like, because he is more the supporting uh, yeah. player here and, and you know, d- doesn't maybe get the same kind of uh, the same kind of love, but he definitely deserves He's it. He's the one that gets the wisecracking lines. Yeah. Well, you kind of can't take your eyes off of him either. I mean, just because of his movement. And I think um, to make him laugh, obviously, I love that scene. But I love the scene where they realize that they can dub the dialogue and they have Debbie Reynolds speaking right. while he's moving yeah. his face to mimic the words. And I mean, he's just doing a simple act of mim- you know mimicking her, but the way he does it in such an expressive way, right. it's just he's sort of fascinating uh, to watch. A very, very charismatic. Uh, physical actor, and he, I, I do think he steals the show quite a bit. Yeah. Um, very, you know, very funny throughout. Yeah, and 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 it's great to see Reynolds too. I mean, she was only nineteen, which in in some ways, I and I was thinking about that watching this one. It's like it's kind of fun. you know, Kelly's forty when when they make this film. Um, and she's his love interest at 19. And I, I, I feel, I, <laughs> I kind of yeah. feel like we might bristle at that more nowadays. I don't know, but, um, you know, it, it, I, I, I try not to, to look too, uh, oh, there was a line, there was a line that I said, they'd never say that today. Yeah. I cannot right. uh, for the life of me remember what it was, but yeah. it was about like, um, those dames, you know, yeah, that, yeah. along the lines of, uh. Right, inferiorizing. Right. Yeah, well, but, in but a lot she's of wonderful. Films, there's a lot of partnering of you know, uh, I think of Rear Window, uh, Grace Kelly's in her twenties, and Jimmy Jimmy Stewart, Stewart's about two hundred or something. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, okay, this is fine. We're we're okay with this, but. Oh yeah, Cary Grant was paired with plenty of uh, yeah. No, I mean it was it was a very common thing for like the young starlets of the day to be paired with the well-worn screen icons who were, you know, well into their 40s, 50s, yeah. It seems like the co-directors must have gotten into a spitballing room and said, we're going to have to deliver four or five set pieces that just blow them away. One of the ones that they come up with, and, it, and it's like, I think I think it's purposely demonstrating many different types of musical numbers that you would see in film, uh, Gotta Dance, the comic relief, uh, one guy gets, you're relying on one person's talents. Um, singing in the Rain, one person's talents, but uh, the set piece of it, the rain on the street. Um, but then there are two, uh, there's three. Uh, beautiful girl. And it shows like different women as mannequins. I, oh, yeah. Exhibiting what I assume is the cutting edge fashion of the yeah. day. Right. And the Technicolor there saves what is otherwise kind of a boring piece. But I think that what they're trying to show there is these are the types of this is what's this compared to what I'm about to talk about is what's kind of being made 
currently. Uh, there is a, what is the technique where, like in a synchronized pool scene where all of the bathing beauties are in a circle and you're shooting from the top down and there's yeah. a central figure. It's, it's like a flower almost. Yeah. They do that with this where he's the central figure and now all the beautiful girls are around him in a circle. Then there's a scene where uh, he he's explaining to RF, a fantastic character, the studio <laughs> head, uh, just a comic relief, you know, whatever. Uh, the, the gruff guy, the, the money guy. The... But really constantly being pushed around by the stars. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Uh, where it's explaining what the, another, the other number is, and it's his ascension uh, up, up through Hollywood. And it's the one where he goes to the different agents and yeah. then, you know, whatever. And then he sees another young man after he's successful doing the same thing, and it kind of breaks his heart. But then the other one, I don't even know how to... It's ballet on a big soundstage... Mm-hmm. with pink and purple, like, as far as the eye can see, there are steps, and he's with the other girl, not Debbie Reynolds, but the, the, Sid the brunette. Sid Charisse. Yeah, yeah, Sid Charisse, that's right. And right. she's got, like, a 50-foot-long sh- uh, scarf, yeah. and there are off-camera fans that are pointing it every different way, and it all seems like one take. It's, 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 uh, it's like a... Um, uh, it's an expressive ballet dance with the two of them that demonstrates Kelly's not just the tap dance guy. You know, I, I'm blown away by all the like what this film's presenting the bro- the breadth of what this film presents. It's not just the funny little story. It's this is the most a musical can be in 1952. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think I ranted and rambled there. I don't, I'm not sure I, I said anything at all. No, you did. I think I think I think what what you said earlier too to to go back to you know you questioning. Okay, does this belong in the top ten? Um, I get why it does. I I understand. I I I I think this film, and I've heard many people say it over the years. There is like just a joyousness to it. Correct. Um, that. Of of like all the films that we have we have talked about in the Sight and Sound Top Ten, this is the one that is just the mood lifter. Like you can, it doesn't matter what kind of day you've had, who you like. If if you can get yourself to sit down and put this film on, I think, you know, the likelihood of you coming out of that not feeling a whole lot better about the world and yourself and 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 its possibilities that. Very small, right? I mean, this is a this is like uh, you know this is the Zoloft of films. You can you you can you know put this thing and I, I you know into your system, and I think you're gonna come out feeling a lot better than you did. So you know, putting this on this weekend, watching it, getting ready for this, it definitely buoyed my spirits. I was I was feeling that lift that it brought along and to to that end i feel like it deserves the placement it has i understand it and and especially for a genre that i think i struggle with regularly this is one that i uh, i really never question that i i will always have a fondness for it and if anybody wants to watch it i'll come along with them yeah we'll talk about in after hours maybe we can talk about some more modern musicals that might have done a better job entertaining us uh that didn't come out right because it's just this entertaining the hell out of me. <laughs> more contemporary musicals that we admire or don't. Sean, close us down on Singing in the Rain. You are the final comment here. Oh, um, I do wonder about the movie that they are constructing within the movie, what that's going to turn out because it seems how it's going to, how well it's going to turn out because it does seem 
um, like they're throwing in a lot of it's kind of a kitchen sink approach because it seemed to be sort of a period piece that they're right. redubbing and then they're adding dream sequences and unrelated uh, things. And some of it, I wonder, well, we've got Gene Kelly. We're going to, we're going to play to his, his strengths. I mean, he's a song and dance man. We're going to, um, I guess where I'm saying where I'm going with that is I wonder how, how, coherent in some degree or how uh well, we see its premiere uh, we see the end the last scene right and the, the audience loved it so well it, we, right. i mean and and I, but that's on the basis of the you know the very last little sequence which is a fairly straightforward song between the characters right. in the period that right. that it's supposed to be set in but I, I hear what sean's saying like would the idea would would the ideas that they seem to be pumping out for the film in its totality actually work together especially in the twenties mm -hmm. when they wouldn't have had color on screen and they wouldn't have had like, because a lot yeah, of that, yeah. you know, the Broadway yeah. melody sequence, which they're talking about, which is that kind of more dreamlike thing where yeah. it's a, like to capture that in a film in the twenties, they weren't going to, it wasn't going to happen, uh, you know, but I, I, so I hear, I hear the misgiving there that, that, okay. Someone is me overthinking uh, the, you know, the movie within <laughs> the movie. <laughs> <laughs> How's that going to work? I was also thinking about the, you know, all the editing that was going to have to happen when they make these. They they, they have a, a premiere of this movie and then they go, OK, we can fix it. And I'm like, can you? I mean, that's going to be that's going to be a lot of work for somebody <laughs> yeah. to uh, to redub everything, especially back then. But no, I overall, I, uh, I do enjoy it. It's just I've seen it so many times. I've started to you start to pick little little details apart where yeah. you go, wait a minute, how would this work out? I actually found myself feeling a little bit bad for Lena Lamont, even though she is sort of the <laughs> villain character. Um, She's a salty lady. <laughs> well, but it's a hard thing that I think is a recurring theme in, in certainly in entertainment in life. I mean, we see a lot of technology makes changes to things and, you know, people are worried now about, AI making changes to yeah. content creators. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's an ongoing, as we evolve, uh, technically we, people have to worry about the, the workaday people have to worry about their, their livelihoods and, and, and remaining relevant. Yeah. And, uh, now, I mean, I'm not advocating her extorting the studio and threatening to sue and everything. I'm just saying that I, I did feel a little bit of sympathy for her, uh, but again, that's a you know, well, it's something that's a fifth that, or sixth time rewatch. Yeah, like, it was also something I intend on bringing up first thing on After Hours, and that is mm -hmm. imagine because Aislinn and I were talking about it all the way over here. We carpooled in, into town uh, for me to come. It, imagine all your job prior to in film is to be pretty. Right. That's it. And uh, be able to and hit, to exaggerate, yeah, your, to be your, able to hit a mark oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. for si for silent film. Then when talking film comes along, she she as a character is like M my voice is fine, right? I mean, it's my voice; it's the one I've had my entire life. How could it be inferior or not popular, given how popular I am? But the question would be: Is there a larger shift in the film? industry from the point of view of the audience as critics from than this one when film mm -hmm. went from silent to talking and that's the conversation we had on the way here I'd 
can't wait to have it with you guys. Yeah, it was a big shift. Um, well, you know, b- big shifts, big beers in our case, mm. uh, shift in beer uh, for us going from the uh, the three point three of the Haterade Gosa that we had in the first half to this 9.2 for the Strawberry Imperial Salty Lady that mm-hmm. Joe and I are drinking in the second half. Mm-hmm. I think I'm feeling it. I, I, if, if you can't hear it, folks, it's only because I'm I'm working my butt off. I'm like the G- Gene Kelly of uh, of podcasts here um, <laughs> to, to maintain no, my I'd composure. The, the Donald O'Connor. I'm the Donald O'Connor? He was okay. a four-pack-a-day smoker. Whoa! I read that. And when yeah. he did uh, make him laugh over the course of two shooting days, uh-huh. he was like bedded down for a week. Oh wow! Because of all the physical yeah, I told that, that makes me feel better because I, it, watching it and thinking that somebody could do that and then like just go on to to do another take and that you know whatever like that that yeah. that's superhuman that, though that he was uh, bedridden well, for a, a couple weeks that makes sense. It's a, a routine that he did as a younger – I don't know exactly how old he is in the, during the filming. But I'm guessing late 30s, early 40s, something like that. Yeah. But he had done it as a younger person, and they wanted to include it in that. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I mean, first of all, I don't – I mean, the things that he does would be very hard for somebody of any, any age. But it, it, he had not done – you know, I'm talking about the writing up the wall and doing the somersault and yeah. things like that. I mean, he was um, – uh, you know, they it was something that he did when he was in his teens or twenties, from what I remember reading. Well, that makes sense. Well, okay, so Ghost is not my go-to, right? Yeah, but here tonight, I'm gonna have to say we've had two exceptional Ghosts in a row, which means then that, like a uh, initial rejection of John Wick as being Sean, you said it so well in the vein of this stuff that's coming out that's. Taken was a great example, uh, but then I've missed something potentially. In reality, the strawberry imperial salty lady is a beautiful girl. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, Joe. I mean, th- this is not not that I think I take the style as granted uh, for no, you're as granted as you do, but well documented. W- when it comes to, I had not had the strawberry imperial before of this. Mm. Um, it is very tasty, is. as you said when you opened it. You could smell the strawberries. It smelled like somebody was making like some strawberry shortcake yeah. in here for us. Um, I was angry they weren't. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, sipping on it is is just as tasty as that aroma was. Um, definitely getting the strawberry. They do a great job of, of bringing that flavor in there in a strong way. Strawberry is one of those things that could be acrid or sour or uh, ugly yeah. uh, as a adjunct. But yeah. here it is handled mm. so well. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm thoroughly impressed. Really happy with uh, what Martin House has, uh, has brought us here. Now, Sean, the mango, it was touch and go here. We were worried. We yeah. thought maybe you were just going to, you know, have to pull out of this second half of the podcast. And I see you've drank quite a bit of it. There, there's yeah. there's not it's, a lot left in your glass. The mango is more in the nose than the the taste, which helps for me. Uh-huh. Um, That's why uh, that explains the clothespin. Yeah, <laughs> it, it tastes a lot uh, like the original Salty Lady, uh, the taste very similar i wouldn't I, I would choose it i wouldn't choose it over the original i would grab it in a pinch um it's so 
I mean, I don't like mango, so to declare yeah. it adequate is yeah. is a win for yeah. for a Martin House. Absolutely, no. That, well I, would, said. I would say so. Yeah. Well, I guess last week at the end of the episode, we had we were fumbling and bumbling and put some films out of order. So if you're here with us this week expecting to have heard about Tetris because you thought we might have had a sneak preview, no. Tetris is next week. Yes. With uh, guest Kaylee Diaz, and I'm excited about that. That will as be a lot of fun. As much as I am the film. Yeah. And we're pairing that with which sight and sound film, David? A Man with a Movie Camera. Which yeah. is available on, I think, HBO Max. I think it might be, yeah. yeah. It's, it's definitely on one of those platforms. Um, so, you know, definitely come join us for that. Uh, but, you know, the best thing about beer in a movie is that the conversation does not end with the episodes. Never. Uh, you can find us on all kinds of social media. We're on Facebook. Mm. We're on Instagram. Yep. And I think the most important thing, if you want to join us on Discord, that's the place to be. So Go fun. there under the name Beer in a Movie. The conversation continues. Um, we get to chat about all these things, little like, uh, you know, the, the things that we didn't quite finish talking about on the episode that maybe occur to us. And they, all of that gets extended today, there. Today, one of our uh, participants there said, hey, I'm in New Braunfels, and I'm willing to pick up any beer that you can think that you may need that might be available that. up here, yeah. and I'll drive back down, uh, one of our local listeners. Yeah. What, local, a beautiful, what a be beautiful guests. community on yeah. Discord. Um, and we've also mentioned already that we're going to be extending this conversation mm. uh, with this episode ourselves and the Patreon-only subscriber uh, Patreon subscriber only after hours bonus episode. So if you want that, go to patreon.com slash beer and a movie podcast. We, we, we'd love to have you join. Um, and we know you're probably listening on your favorite podcast platform, but before you leave, won't you please rate us and leave a review? We hope you'll make it five stars so that the algorithm can do what it do, David, and put us out there as an option for more listeners. You've just experienced another rain soaked choreographed mm -hmm. episode of beer in a movie. Until next time. Round tones. Round tones. <laughs>